This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right. Welcome back to Energy Sense, an S&P Global podcast covering all things on the intersection of energy and finance. It's your host, Hill Vaden, and I'm here today with Roderick Bruce, an expert in the petroleum sectors of uh, African countries. Roderick, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me on the podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm glad to do this. I, I'm uh, you, you and I talked a couple uh, days ago or a couple weeks ago, and this has been a topic that that has me curious and one that I know you've been looking at closely. Uh, I guess just put, before I get into that, um, I, I want to note to listeners that we will be putting more information in the liner notes to the podcast uh, about where to learn more about the services to which Roderick uh, contributes, and how to learn more about Roderick himself in terms of his expertise, as well as the way to communicate with us here at the podcast, and that's energysense at ihsmarket.com. So please check out the liner notes of the podcast on SoundCloud or Spotify or wherever you're listening now for more information. And now we will get into the meat of the conversation, and that is Africa petroleum sectors. And and really some of the curiosity here is, you know, a lot of African countries are resource rich, and some have been, you know, there's some marquee oil and gas discoveries over the past decade or so, whether that be Mozambique or uh, Egypt or Senegal, uh, most recently Namibia. And, And these petroleum sectors, these countries would rely on petroleum sectors to advance the economy. So, so I'm curious, and I know many others are as well, how to look at this as uh, net zero goals and low carbon ambition put at risk some of the outlooks for oil and gas projects, particularly some of these large, long lead time oil and gas projects, and, and how the host governments are potentially responding or what some of the kind of thoughts are. So, so Roderick, maybe if you could help kind of set the scene, I, I think we want it to, to look specifically at Senegal, where there was a big discovery, I think, in 2015 or 2016. And then Namibia, uh, more recently, is kind of uh, case studies. But before we get into those details, set us up, help us uh, yeah, understand sure. where, how we should be thinking. Well, I think, you know, Africa, if we're thinking about the global E&P sector, I think Africa, you know, in recent years has kind of fallen down the agenda because it's it's often seen as quite, a, you know, a high risk jurisdiction above ground. I mean, obviously, we talk about Africa as a huge continent. Uh, Sub-Saharan Africa itself is absolutely vast. So, you know, it's really hard to talk about it as just one particular area, but obviously you do have to generalise. And and, and if we are generalising from a a foreign investor point of view, it's maybe a bit more risky in the above ground in terms of, you know, political risks, security risks, um, operational risks than some other countries around the world. So, I think Africa, in terms of investor interest, maybe had been waning a little bit. But that said, in terms of you know upstream investment, um, Africa is still a hotbed of frontier exploration, as you mentioned mm-hmm. in your introduction. We've seen some big discoveries this year in Namibia, as you said. We've also seen some last year in Cote d'Ivoire, which is the Belen discovery offshore there. And you know, in, in recent years, like you say, you know, we've seen big finds in Mozambique big gas discoveries in Tanzania, finds in Uganda, Kenya, 
I think what's notable, notable about many of those, though, is that they still haven't yet actually come to production. Right. So a lot of these African host countries are sitting on potential revenue bonanzas here that could really change their economies incredibly, bring in lots of revenues that can, you know, help develop their economies, help develop their industries, and obviously improve the living standards of the populations. But the, the problem is that, you know, bringing big resource discoveries to production and making the most of those revenues is, is not an easy challenge for any country. And it's particularly difficult for countries with, you know, limited government capacity, limited regulatory capacity, for example. So that's the challenges that many African countries are facing. And in the context that you mentioned of the energy transition, mm -hmm. suddenly many African governments, not just frontiers, but established petroleum producers like, you know, Nigeria, Angola, they're suddenly wondering, well, actually, do we now have a limited time window here, a limited window of opportunity to make sure we make the most of our resources. So there's a sort of um, a controversy over that where, you know, African governments are feeling pressured that, um, you know, more developed economies in the West are saying, well, actually, you have to, you know, reduce your carbon emissions and perhaps forego these revenue opportunities from fossil fuels. So there's a lot of different pressures that were already bearing or down on host governments in Africa, but the energy transition has added yet another pressure, another challenge for them to deal with in trying to, you know, navigate the complexity involved in, in you know, reaping the economic benefits that, that hydrocarbon production can bring. And are you seeing, I mean, one thing interesting from the, uh, and I want to, you know, stay, stay focused on the host government conversation, but one thing interesting, if we just look at the upstream sector for, for a minute, the pure play explorer that, you know, really opened up new opportunity doesn't exist in quite the same way that it did 10, 15 years ago. You know, Anadarko has been acquired by Hoxie, you know, T Tullo has merged, Cosmos, uh, I guess, is still out there. But but there are that that appetite for exploration, either as a pure play or as part of an integrated oil major, has changed and, and somewhat shrunk, um, given the long lead time associated with bringing a lot of this stuff to market. So, so is how has the petroleum sector of these or, or the underdeveloped petroleum sectors responded to that? Or are they being more proactive and trying to incite uh, or invite exploration? Or, or is it reactive where when people come to them, when firms come to them, they move? Yeah, I mean, that's it's a really interesting question because I think we, we have seen a shift in the competitive landscape in Africa. And like you say, the, you know, the, the real gung-ho um, explorers um, that we saw years ago, you know, the likes of Cosmos, as you mentioned, Tullow Oil, smaller companies that are mm -hmm. more comfortable with exploration risk, both below ground and then the above ground risk as well. Those have maybe reined in their ambitions a little bit. So, for example, the big discoveries in Namibia were made by Total Energy, as they're called now, or Total, as they're formerly known, and Shell. And the big discovery in Cote d'Ivoire was made by ENI or ENI from okay. Italy. You know, these are big companies with much stronger balance sheets and much sharper focus on both exploration and then development as well. So they're not just pure play explorers. Um, you know, they're integrated companies that are happy to make big discoveries, but then see them through to production as well. So as the smaller explorers have moved out, we've seen different players looking around at frontiers, mainly the majors now. But we've also seen, you know, other partners coming in. You can see, you know, Qatar Petroleum 
or mm-hmm. Qatar Energy, as they're, they're, they're now called, you know, the NOC from Qatar, joining in to several big exploration wells um, across the last couple of years in Africa. And in more developed petroleum producers, we've also seen private equity-backed companies coming in to replace the oil majors who are moving out from mature areas. So there has definitely been a shift. And I think countries, host countries are still grappling with just the general challenge of attracting investment because fundamentally companies will go to the most attractive countries. And that's not just geological, you know, below ground attractiveness. It's also about the above ground attractiveness, which is, you know, the right terms, the right fiscal Mm -hmm. terms, stability in those terms. So not too much volatility around you know, the sanctity of those contracts that we've seen perhaps in countries like Tanzania, for example. Right. Um, and they're also looking for you know, broader above ground stability and security. So in Mozambique, for example, we've seen big projects there stalled by you know, security issues. So countries still face a big challenge in terms of you know, licensing new acreage. There's so many factors that play into getting the scene right to attract foreign investors. So you see countries moving from bid rounds to direct negotiation. Some are mm-hmm. moving back from direct negotiation to bid rounds and others are offering a, a mix of the two and they're all competing against each other. And that competition is only increasing as the, the pool of capital that international oil companies have is, is, is shrinking you know, to spend on exploration. And what, I mean, let's, if, if we can talk a little bit about some specific examples, if, if we start with Senegal, so, so, you know, Senegal, I think it was what, 2015 or 2016 with, with the Cosmos yeah. uh, and they actually BP had, discovery. That's right. And they had an oil discovery, even, I think it was in 2014, mm-hmm. made by Cairn, that's now operated by Woodside. So yeah, they have a, as I mentioned at the start, you know, they're one of these countries that is sitting on, you know, a potential, a great windfall of both oil and gas production. And gas, of course, being you know more valuable, uh, at least you know in the immediate term, into people's kind of strategy, um, but both from a low carbon basis and for the immediate, um, I guess, energy security needs. Yeah. Exactly. So, so Senegal would seem to have, you know, there, there's a lot of reasons for for Senegal to, I'll say, be proactive, uh, look look out for itself, I suppose, and, and how this yeah. stuff moves forward. I think the original plan called for all of this for this project that the, the um, BP Cosmos project to hit market around 21, uh, and I think it's still what 22, 23 that we're yeah. moving forward. But but how has Senegal's how have things changed in the from the Senegalese perspective? Um, yeah, as we've undergone this um, you know energy, I guess focused to, to, on the low carbon side of things. Yeah, well, I think it's really interesting. I mean, Senegal got a lot of things right in terms of unlocking their hydrocarbon potential. So they, as many frontier countries do, had really attractive fiscal terms in the, you know, the sort of 2014 period when we saw oil prices fall. Mm-hmm. And those attractive terms meant that explorers were still active there, um, even though the price environment wasn't particularly good. So it was in that context, Senegal, you know, staying attractive to investors, the, the big discoveries were actually made. So that was a great, great start for them. But then in, in 2019, so after these oil and gas discoveries were made, Senegal actually obviously saw that it was now, you know, very attractive to investors and proven resources. And it was sort of moving between that exploration phase, you know, looking towards new production. So suddenly the government was under pressure to, you know, sort of maximize revenues that, that were expected. So it did that. It decided to increase its tax levels, you know, so they went from about 53% overall 
in the upstream to about 73%, you know, which wow. is a huge increase. And that had the, the impact of pretty much knocking out new investor interest in, in new licensing in Senegal. So it went from being one of the hot new areas for licensing and exploration to, you know, having a, what was a, you know, an unsuccessful first bid round. So I think it's a sort of cautionary tale that governments need to strike a balance between generating revenues for themselves, um, but also protecting the returns for the foreign investors that are actually going to bring these resources out of the ground. Um, and that's especially true, I think, now that, as I said before, you know, the, the amount of money that foreign oil companies are willing to spend has been mm-hmm. reduced and they're a, a, maybe a little bit more risk averse. So that's one one thread of what's happened in Senegal. The, the other thread is that in terms of these first big discoveries that were made, they, they've actually made some some pretty good progress towards, you know, bringing them to production. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it did get, um, you know, stalled somewhat by the, the COVID pandemic inevitably and the logistical challenges that that brought on. Um, but clearly, there's a huge opportunity for Senegal, particularly on the on the gas side, as you mentioned, not just for gas exports, because they're, they're so well placed for export into Europe, which is obviously mm-hmm. a big topic now because of the Ukraine conflict, but also the opportunity to use that gas domestically to power industry, you know, like fertilizers, gas to power. Okay. Uh, and solve one of the big problems that, that many African countries have, which is a, a lack of reliable power generation. So, um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting sort of mixed story for Senegal, I think. But we're going to see now how the government there manages the revenues from these discoveries as they come to production, because that's another element that many of these countries face is, you know, how to prove that you can transparently and fairly manage revenues to ensure that they're distributed among the population and spent wisely, because obviously that's a pitfall that you know previous producers in in Africa have have fallen into. Well, all over the world, right? I mean, that's the resource curse. Exactly. Um, you underdevelop other parts of the economy uh, when you're getting too rich from one one section of the economy. Exactly. So, I mean, I, I guess. So how has, you, you mentioned that the the new entry into Senegal ha, has slowed or, or stopped on, on the back of, of that tax increase and, and other uh, uh, take, um, increase in take. How has the behavior of BP Cosmos changed? Is it, um, are, are they just kind of working through it because there's nothing they can do? Well, luckily they're not affected by it. So only that, okay. that particular aspect only affects new contracts. So... Though we have seen it in some countries in Africa, like I mentioned, for Tanzania threatened the, the sanctity of existing contracts and, and we're going to change the tax terms of those. In Senegal, they haven't done that. So that is, that's very positive, you know. So so BP and Woodside in their project have been able to, you know, still work through in the original, based on the original contracts and so have economic certainty over, or more or less certainty over what those you know, what profits those projects are going to produce. I think more of an issue in Senegal and in other emerging producers um, for foreign companies developing these projects, there are aspects such as local content that they mm-hmm. have to navigate, you know. Uh, I mean, obviously, those are Im- important policies for governments to maximise the employment opportunities and the skills transfer from investment in the hydrocarbon sector. But it's important to implement those policies properly so that investors don't face really high regulatory burden or um, you know increased costs. So I think that's something that BP and Cosmos are looking at closely in Senegal and are also you know looking to cooperate closely with the government on. 
And I think another element is also domestic gas supply. Because mm -hmm. um, again, it's, it's, it's really important about the, not just the, it's important about the optics for local populations that they see that these big foreign run projects are actually benefiting them. So we've got local content and then you've got, like I said, you know, clear benefits through industrialization, power supply, et cetera, that can come from domestic gas supply. So it's really important that the companies deliver on those. And how about from the perspective of, I guess, expansion, if, if the existing contracts were protected from the changes and now you've got new barriers to entry for anybody new coming in to, to Senegal, is there opportunity for the incumbent to expand operations or? or... Yeah, yeah. They would, okay. I mean, BP and Cosmos are actually looking at, you know, a second phase of their Greater Tortu project, their floating LNG project that they're that they're working on. Um, and that, in fact, that project's scale has been increased in light of the, you know, higher energy prices in Europe. They see a, an opportunity to monetize more gas, more gas reserves from Senegal, which is very positive. And I think in terms of new investors, you know, I think we get the sense that Senegal might be, you know, might be looking again at their terms, perhaps seeking to make them a bit more competitive again so that they can... Okay you know, solve the problems that they face since their tighter tax terms were introduced in 2019. So I think that there is a definitely positive signs that the government's listening. Okay. I guess that's the uh, the advantage of making the rules. If, if you don't get the attention you want, the positive attention you want from the change, then, then you can change them again and, exactly. and have another go. So Namibia is clearly watching this and, and you know, yeah. the, you know, the, the equatorial margin um, that, that has, you know, been, been host to so many uh, large discoveries. It, you know the the Namibia discoveries earlier this year. I think it was February, March. You, you mentioned Shell and both Total. Yeah. Um, within a couple of weeks of one of the right the announcements. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Very I mean, large Venus and Graph. That's um, right. I mean these are huge discoveries, and but the operators are still being very coy about releasing the the actual numbers. But certainly, I don't think there's any doubt that these are very big, very important discoveries of both light oil, which is, you know, very desirable for export and gas as well. So, I mean, Namibia, by the early 2030s, Namibia could go from not producing anything to being the third largest producer in sub-Saharan Africa. And that's a big deal, not just for Namibia itself, but also for, you know, the global oil market, um, especially given that many African producers, the likes of, you know, Angola and Nigeria, Mm -hmm. I've seen their production declining for many years. So, you know, this is this is a big deal. This is it's a really important moment for, for Namibia and for the African oil sector in the context of the energy transition. A lot of other countries will be looking at Namibia's discoveries and how they're developed to see whether the hydrocarbon sector is still a viable proposition in Africa. And this is these are oil discoveries relative to Senegal. These are much more reliant on the oil production. Is that correct? It, it, it looks that way, yes. Okay. Um, but there's still a, a significant gas component that could lead to gas exports as well. And so, how does one gas has an advantage within the net zero conversation because it's that much lower carbon? Um, yeah. What are some of what are the some of the things that that Namibia is looking at, Total is looking at, in, in terms of longer lead time oil discoveries, given the net zero ambition of at least Total and presumably uh, Namibia? Yeah, I mean, I think the scale of these discoveries and also the 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 advantage location of Namibia and other 
sort of renewables related ambitions that the, the country has <clears throat> means that I think there is more realistic scope and expectation around Venus that it could be developed in a slightly more sustainable way, a sort of carbon friendly way, if you like. And I think we've also seen, you know, in a similar discovery, the Balen discovery in Cote d'Ivoire by ENI, they have also pledged that that will be a, a net zero development. So they haven't detailed yet how it will be net zero. I mean, we can probably assume that some of the elements of power going into that project itself might be from renewable energy, but, you know, we might see some sort of offsetting. Don't know, it's not clear. But these are going to be really important sort of test cases for the upstream, I think, in terms of, you know, trying to comply with, with net zero targets, et cetera, um, while also delivering, you know, the, the hydrocarbon output that is still, you know, still required globally until we've fully made that, that energy transition. How is Namibia contributing to those conversations? You know, Shell and Total are pretty vocal and pretty visible, e and I as well, um, yeah, well, in I mean, their net zero, but what, what is, how is that framing the the, the fiscal take conversation um, at Namibia as they're trying to develop a petroleum sector from effectively scratch? Yes, well, I think broadly from what we've seen from Namibia's um, institutions, um, you know, the Petroleum Ministry and, and the NOC, they are very keen to, as you might expect, very keen to get these developments off the ground quickly. Right. And they've they've taken a very pragmatic approach. You know, there's been no indications from them that they want to do anything to change the terms of any existing contracts. Um, you know, they want to facilitate these developments, get them off the ground. And, you know, Namibia is very much looking at sort of green opportunities in other energy sources. So they've been looking at a green hydrogen project, for example. They're one of the, the sort of leaders in sub-Saharan Africa of looking at, you know, new green fuels. So I think key government institutions are definitely trying to find a, a kind of compromise pathway where, you know, they can monetize these huge hydrocarbon fossil fuel discoveries, but also still, you know, play a role in, in facilitating some sort of global transition. I think it's worth noting, though, that recently we saw a governmental panel in Namibia recommending to the government that it takes a larger stake in some onshore oil projects in the in the country, which is obviously not a good sign as potentially changing existing contracts. So that's definitely something to watch. Um, okay. and I'm sure the likes of Shell and Total are looking closely at that, but I don't think, well, if, if Namibia has learned lessons from the likes of Tanzania and, and maybe to a lesser extent Senegal, then they, they won't be, you know, tightening tax terms or, or increasing government share in any of these existing projects because it could derail them entirely. Well, it would seem that all participants, whether host country or oil company, speed is an advantage. Here. Yeah. And are, are we seeing changes to try to accelerate the decision process and, and or the, the path to market? Well, I think that's that could be a, an issue for Namibia because it's, you know, it is a, is a frontier country. It is an experienced mm -hmm. country in terms of the extractive industries. You know, it's got a diamond sector. Um, so that could help, but it's still going to be a big challenge. And we've seen it in Senegal where they've actually had help from the World Bank in terms of getting funding for building out their sector institutions. So it's going to be really important for Namibia to try and do that efficiently so that they're in a position to cope with, you know, the huge influx of operational decisions, project-related decisions, revenue-related decisions, et cetera, that they're going to have to manage. Um, and they have to be prudent with, 
you know, their expectations of revenues, because we've seen the likes of Mozambique, you know, mm. getting into a large amount of sovereign debt based on its expected gas revenues in the future. And that didn't work out too well for them. You know, it contributed to their sovereign debt default a few years ago. So there's definitely, you know, for Venus and Graf to, to start generating these revenues, there's you've got big operational challenges. You know, mm -hmm. Venus is, is one of the deepest, potentially would be the one of the deepest deep water developments ever. And in the host government side, you have these sort of institutional and, and capacity challenges as well. So what, you know, I guess looking forward here, I mean, like, whether Senegal or Namibia um, or, or some of the other frontier countries, um, um, Tanzania that, that you've touched on, what should we be paying attention to? And what, where, where do we expect things to go? I'll say in the immediate term, but but more in the in the short term that, that I, I would say yeah. that there's a lot of, I, I would call it quiet activity for, for, for many uh, of us energy watchers. But um, what, what are the things that we should look to that, that I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of noise within that quiet activity? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that there's two things that I'd flag up in the near term in terms of Africa's ENP sector. The first one is, you know, this newfound focus on Africa's gas, you know, particularly from from Europe. Right. Because you've seen a paradigm shift in the in the gas markets because of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. And suddenly countries that were seen as being too risky, projects that had maybe stalled, weren't seen as very attractive, had fallen down the priority list for investors. Suddenly, those you know discovered resources are looking more realistic about being monetized. So we've already seen projects in the likes of the Republic of Congo, and perhaps Mozambique, Senegal, etc., being revived. Some of them being expanded, you know, to potentially supply Europe. So I think there's a big focus again on Africa's very substantial already discovered resources, you know, and how they can be brought to market. And then I think the second trend that I think is really worth watching in Africa, because again, it is very instructive for the global hydrocarbon sector, is the pressure that environmental groups are, are bringing to bear on you know, these big new projects. Um, we've already seen in Mozambique uh, and in Uganda, that, uh, and obviously for, for many years before in the likes of Nigeria, that climate concerns and local environmental concerns are um, just coming to the forefront, as you might expect, for the fossil fuels industry. So, for example, in Uganda, you know, we've seen challenges to the financing of the East Africa crude oil pipeline. And in South Africa, we've seen seismic surveys being blocked by mm -hmm. local legal challenges by environmental groups. In Mozambique, we've seen Friends of the Earth trying to, um, you know, they brought a legal case saying that, um, the involvement of the UK's export credit agency in funding that project actually didn't comply with the UK's uh, obligations under the Paris Agreement. So there's many different levers that environmental groups are, are trying to pull now to um, potentially slow or prevent major fossil fuel developments, and particularly in developing countries. So I think that's something to, to really watch, um, because I think these pressures will only intensify, and that really puts the pressure on foreign investors the big IOCs to really engage constructively in these arguments, because how effectively they do so is really going to determine whether these projects go ahead, and if they do go ahead, how quickly and efficiently they do so. And do you see the, you know, I know it varies by country, but but the competitive environment more or less staying what it is and favoring the incumbent, given some of the the, the barriers to entry, or you know, the other consequence of the the low oil price that we went through, you know, several years ago was uh, a lot of these exploration staff were let go 
um, yeah. from some of these peer play explorers, and you mentioned private equity earlier in the conversation. Yeah. Do you see new company formation um, and, and maybe a, an appetite to enter some of these more, more complex um, if you've got perhaps different views on how to yeah. play the net zero uh, outlook? I, I think generally in terms of exploration, particularly on on the scale that the most companies want it to be on now, you know, they mm -hmm. want big discoveries, uh, obviously. And um, generally the companies that can deliver those are the ones with the, the strong balance sheets, the, the best technology. So that is the, you know, the playground for the oil majors generally these days. And I think more in mature producing countries where the majors are starting to pull out to some degree, like in Nigeria, Angola, mm -hmm. then we're seeing new players coming in there where they can leverage their expertise more to to get the most out of you know aging oil fields and um, you know make those operations work better for them whereas they, they fill down the priority list for the majors um, so I think you know there's definite shift in Africa's competitive landscape but in terms of exploration I think uh, and particularly in terms of big developments you know it's still very much the the playground for the majors and maybe a select group of majors, particularly the likes of Total uh, and ENI, have been you know the big success stories in recent years in Africa. How about any of the international NOCs or you know, some of the national oil companies with, with international interest? Yeah, I mean we 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 still see the likes of um, Petronas and Qatar Energy, as as I mentioned mm -hmm. earlier, partnering with IOCs in okay. big projects or, or in some cases you know leading exploration patronas in uh, in gabon for example but generally the international nocs have perhaps pulled back a little bit from sub-saharan africa um particularly the chinese players that we saw really go big into the likes of angola and also had you know slightly more difficult presences in the likes of say chad and niger maybe nigeria to a certain extent i don't think they'll play the role that they they had done in the past. So in terms of NOCs, it's all about you know the local incumbents, you know the, the host government entities. What role can they play in in trying to push their sectors forward? And we've already seen some interesting shifts on that in Angola. Sonangol has been restructured. It's lost its regulatory functions. It's trying to be run as a more commercial entity. And mm -hmm. um, you know just this week we saw um, NNPC in Nigeria being relaunched again as a more transparent and commercial entity. So again, it's a sign that host governments realize that um, they need to play a more transparent and, and sort of productive role in the sectors than they have in the past. Okay. Well, I'd probably get you out of here in 30 minutes. I think we're, uh, we're, we're at the top of that 30 minute call. So um, thank you uh, very, very much for uh, making time to talk with us today. Pleasure. And I, uh, I'm anxious to, to watch what happens and, and to, to see more uh, of your work around that. So uh, thank you. You can pick up the conversation again, perhaps on future uh, podcasts if you've had fun. Thank you. Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks, Roderick. Bye-bye. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. 
To learn more about IHS Market Energy solutions, visit ihsmarket.com energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.